0: I'm Alicia, and this is Dead On. on as a proud member of the PodMoth Media Network. Buckle up, because the case I've got for you today has everything. Two mysterious disappearances, decades apart, and when both sets of remains were finally discovered, both deaths were ruled undetermined. And here's the truly unsettling part. The decedents were mother and son. To this day, their deaths remain shrouded in mystery. So, what really happened to Marcia Moore and Christopher Roof? Before I kick off, I need to shout out the legendary Daniel Vaughn. If you spot Daniel in any of the true crime groups, do yourself a favor and say hello. He's one of the nicest people you'd ever have the pleasure of chatting with. And he's got a knack for digging up the most wild, mysterious cases. This case being no exception. Pour yourself a cuppa and get comfy, because you're in for a ride. To say that Marcia Moore lived a colorful life is probably the understatement of the century. She was a wealthy heiress, yoga teacher, writer, esotericist, and astrologer. She was born on May twenty-second, 1928, to the fine, blue-blooded Moore family, the sole daughter of five children. Can you even imagine? Boy energy is rambunctious, and times that by four. Her brothers included Robin, John, William, and Paul. And their proud parents were the illustrious Eleanor Turner Moore and Robert Lowell Moore. If those names don't yet ring a bell, they're about to. Because Robert L. Moore is the founder of the Sheraton Hotel chain. Yup, that's where the heiress part comes in. Good old dad was the OG of capitalizing on a bad situation. Back in the 30s, life was tough. The Great Depression was in full swing. Most people lost their asses and were forced to sell off most of their prized possessions and children just to put food on the table. But not Robert L. Moore and his business partner, Ernest Henderson. They made the most of the crashing economy by snapping up depressed real estate. In 1937, Robert and Ernest purchased the Stonehaven Hotel in Springfield, Massachusetts, which laid the foundation for their grand plan. Establish a chain of hotels that offer a consistent experience and reliable service. A mission statement that the chain carries to this very day. And you're not going to believe how they decided on a name. The name Sheraton sounds posh, high-end, and deliberate, right? Well, get this. Like myself. Robert and Ernest loved bargain. And in a depressed market, properties were being sold for the cost of their back taxes. Get the joint out of arrears and it's yours. Which is exactly how they acquired their third hotel. And that third hotel already had a big old lighted sign on it that read Sheraton. Since it would have cost more to remove the sign than they could have been bothered to kerfuffle with, Robert and Ernest agreed to name all their hotels in the chain after that bad boy. Why splash out when you don't have to, am I right? Throughout the 40s, Robert and Ernest continued to snap up hotel properties left, right, and center. They started in Boston, then expanded into New York, Philly, and across the rest of New England. By 1945, they'd plopped down hotels in every state along the eastern seaboard. Things were going so well that they took the Sheridan Corporation public in 1949, becoming the very first hotel chain to be listed on the New York Stock Exchange. There was no stopping them, now. By 1967, Robert and Ernest were ready to sell up and reap the rewards, so they began negotiations with the International Telephone and Telegraph Corporation. Sadly, Ernest passed away before the transfer, but Robert and his family were alive and well, and able to close that deal. After that, the Moore family became even more filthy stinking rich than before. You might be thinking, well, the Moors sound boring, rich, and uptight. But let me tell you something. They were anything but. The matriarch, Eleanor Turner-Moore, was an esotericist, writer, and illustrator. In fact, Eleanor and Robert were involved with the New England Theosophical Society, an occultist movement and spiritual philosophy that celebrates the wisdom of the divine. Followers of theosophy believe that there's a deeper spiritual realm, which can be accessed with transcendental experiences like meditation. But you didn't see that coming from the wealthy owners of an international hotel chain, did you? Apparently Eleanor used to chuckle about the seemingly paradoxical combination, and joked that they were a family of blue-blooded spiritualists. Like their parents, the more children went on to do great things. Robert L. Moore Jr., a.k.a. Robin, became a respected writer, and penned multiple best-selling novels, including The Green Berets and The French Connection, which, no big deal, were made into blockbuster movies. The lovely Marcia Moore also became a writer, and like her parents, she delicately straddled the line between Blue Blood and spiritualist. She attended Radcliffe College a liberal arts institution that eventually merged with Harvard. There's the blue blood for you. And can you guess the topic of her senior thesis? What else but astrology? There's the spirituality for you. After graduating from Radcliffe, she became a teacher and writer, authoring and co-authoring several books about astrology, yoga, and reincarnation. Marcia was passionate about searching for deeper meaning in life. She felt that doors to hidden realms were always close at hand, and learning the techniques to find them would expand her consciousness. Throughout the 70s, Marcia's renown in the astrology community grew. She developed a technique called hypersentience, which apparently allowed practitioners to access their previous lives. She even used these techniques to suss out the men in her life, mapping out their stars and consulting past lives to find out how things shook out before. Sometimes the stars were a bit harsh, like a judgmental, bitchy older sister, and delivered the news that these men wouldn't cut the mustard as a life partner. But Marcia didn't mind. Even if they weren't meant to share their entire lifetime, their paths were meant to cross, even just for a while. All up, Marcia was married four times. She had three children with her first husband, including Louisa, Christopher, and Jonathan. And it was the 70s, right? Marcia's social circles were mostly focused on alternative and counterculture lifestyles. Her friends were experimenting with psychoactives, hoping to expand their minds. They convinced her to try all the classics, like cannabis, LSD, and mescaline. And, in her opinion, none of these drugs delivered on the promise of mind expansion. In her writings about these experiences, Marcia lamented, quote, All these endeavors left me with the tantalizing sensation of having caught a few sneak peeks of a show that never came to town. End quote. Additionally, Marcia was strictly into healthy living. She did yoga, drank herbal tea, and wouldn't even take aspirin for a headache. Drugs just weren't her thing. However, she did eventually find one drug that absolutely blew her mind. Ketamine. One of her friends encouraged her to try it, explaining that it was the essence of bottled bliss. We've probably all heard of ketamine, but honestly, that's where my personal knowledge lives and dies. If you're like me and have basically no idea what it is, I did us both a favor and looked it up. Ketamine hydrochloride is mostly used in clinical settings as an anesthetic because it induces sleep and blocks pathways to the brain that sense pain. However, it's also used recreationally. According to the Alcohol and Drug Foundation, Ketamine is a dissociative drug, which means it acts on different chemicals in the brain to produce visual and auditory distortion and a detachment from reality. End quote. Best case scenario, you'll take ketamine and feel relaxed, happy, euphoric, and detached from your body. You might experience auditory and visual hallucinations. Worst case scenario, you'll experience anxiety, panic, vomiting, and violence. I'm panicking just thinking about these worst case scenarios. But you do you, Marcia. Describing her first experience with ketamine, she wrote, It started with a slight giddiness and a noise like the chirping of crickets. I felt effulgently happy and at ease, even though the traceries of dark beams against the white ceiling were now dancing back and forth and dissolving into a kaleidoscopic reverie of geometrical designs. The sensation was reminiscent of the times I had inhaled nitrous oxide at the dentist's office. But that had been like standing at a door. This time I was going in. It also felt like going home. End quote. From that day on, she was convinced of ketamine's transportive properties. She probably felt safe using ketamine with her fourth husband, Dr. Howard S. Altunian. He was very familiar with the drugs through his work as an anesthesiologist. If anything went wrong with the ketamine, who better than an anesthesiologist to help you out of the jam and get a load of the couple's meet cute? In May of 1977, Howard was browsing at the Quest Bookstore in his home of Seattle, Washington. He stumbled across a book that Marcia co-authored called Astrology: The Divine Science. When he skimmed the dust jacket to read the preview, he laid eyes on a photo of the co-author, Marcia Moore. It sounds like he had a bit of a cartoon wolf hard eyes and tongue unroll moment, because he recalled, quote, "I actually felt some electrical impulse coming off the page and penetrating me, such as we visualize with magnetism end quote," which is exactly the level of nerdiness one might expect from an anesthesiologist. When the pair finally met a few months later, the feeling was apparently mutual. Marcia was doing a tour of speaking engagements across the U.S. and Canada. While she hadn't planned to stop in Seattle, the stars must have aligned for Marcia and Howard, because she ended up lecturing at the Seattle Museum. And who was sitting there in the front row but Dr. Howard Altunian? The longer he listened, the more rapt with both the lecture and the lecturer he became. He actually recorded the entire lecture so he could listen over and over. The next day, the pair finally crossed paths in an astrology workshop. Apparently, Howard presented Marcia with his horoscope for review. And it sounds like Marcia had her own cartoon wolf heart eyes moment because she realized that their horoscopes were perfectly aligned. But not only that, it indicated that a new lady had just entered his life. Little did she know in that moment, but that new lady was her. Howard was totally smitten, telling her, Marcia, I know my destiny is either with you or through you. Then he presented her with a pendant necklace, telling her it had healing powers. From then on, the pair were inseparable and married in November of 1977. It seems like Howard looked to Marcia as somewhat of a spiritual guide as she was the far more experienced practitioner. The couple would discuss the paths to mind expansion and enlightenment at length, and eventually arrived at the conclusion that they should experiment with ketamine. Of course, Howard was all too familiar with the drug through his work, and knew the appropriate dosages to balance that tightrope between pleasant association and total chaos. Together, they wanted to explore the forbidden zones of the higher consciousness. Over time, Howard became convinced that ketamine would one day be recognized as one of the most powerful tools in psychotherapy. The couple actually wrote a book about their pharmacological experiments, calling it Journeys into the Bright World. I actually found a PDF copy online, so if you want to check it out yourself, I'll drop a link on the episode discovery page. The book's abstract reads, Why did Marcia Moore the celebrated yoga teacher, astrologer, and author, and Dr. Howard Sunny Altunian, M.D., a successful and respected anesthesiologist, risk their health, their careers, even their sanity. This is the intimate, personal story of their life together, their love and their explorations into forbidden zones of higher consciousness. Here is the tape-recorded evidence of the struggles they endured, the past lives they relived, and the joy that they found. Under the guidance of the goddess Ketamine, it's an space adventure story, more exciting and more profound than any novel, and every word true. End quote. Most of it is a bit woo for my taste, but I must admit I loved reading about their meet-cute. You can find it in chapter 2, which is called To Begin Again. And it all sounds so promising, right? instant soul connection between two seekers whose horoscopes intertwined. But you know how these things go. Nothing is ever as perfect and shiny as it seems. For the next six months, Marcia and Howard experimented with ketamine, taking it once a day and recording their experiences. Over time, Howard began to feel that it wasn't delivering the enlightenment he'd hoped for, so he stopped taking it. But Marcia continued on increasing her dosage to 50 milligrams twice per day. Everyone begged her to stop taking it, sensing she was losing herself to ketamine, but she refused. On the evening of Sunday, January 14, 1979, Howard asked Marcia if she wanted to go see a movie. She declined, explaining that she wanted to go to bed early. She wanted to start writing a book and needed a good night of rest so the good doctor went off to the movies on his lonesome. When he arrived home after midnight, Marcia was nowhere to be found. As Howard searched for her, he found that all of her possessions were in their usual places. Her handbag, passport, wallet, and money were all accounted for. So Howard began searching high and low for Marcia, to no avail. She was gone. When Marcia still hadn't returned by the following morning, Howard reported her missing. Considering that Marcia was well-known both for her own work and for her family's achievements, police initially believed she may have been abducted and warned Howard that he might receive a threat for ransom in the coming days. When no letter or phone call ever came, investigators were forced to explore other possibilities. Theory number one, could Howard have had something to do with it? It's almost always the husband, right? Well, his movie alibi checked out, and there just wasn't enough evidence to tie him to anything. Theory number two. Could Marcia have taken her own life? Howard vehemently denied that she would have, explaining that it was very much against her beliefs of reincarnation. If she took her own life, she'd be doomed in her future lives. Theory number three. Howard's personal theory. He blamed Marcia's ketamine use. Apparently, Marcia had been taking two doses of ketamine every day for the past 14 months. Howard believed that Marcia might have suffered from amnesia and severe depression when she disappeared, and might have wandered off not knowing who she was. Like I said, Marcia had been taking ketamine with unnerving regularity, and the long-term effects are very concerning. Apparently, regular use can cause flashbacks, mood and personality changes, depression, poor memory, and dependence. Something tells me that 14 months of consistent use could absolutely cause dependence. So I looked up the symptoms of withdrawal, and here's why I became really concerned. You may experience nightmares, restlessness, anxiety, depression, and risk of injury. I repeat, risk of injury. Which makes sense, right? Ketamine blocks those pathways to the brain that cause pain. So if you injure yourself, you might not even be aware of it, which is really quite dangerous. At first, I wasn't entirely sure I bought Howard's theory that Marcia had wandered off and had suffered a tragic accident. But what if she was experiencing withdrawal? What if she was restless, depressed, and disoriented? So she took off into that cold January night where something horrible happened. Now, that's a version of offense I could feasibly understand. However, without any evidence to prove or disprove it, I just can't get fully on board. Theory number four. And this is the most woo-out-there possibility of all. Some of Marcia's friends and acolytes believed she may have dematerialized. According to their beliefs, if a practitioner spiritually ascends to the next level of consciousness, their body will dematerialize. And I truly wish this was the case, because Marcia would have been over the moon. Sadly, that's just not what happened. For two long years, it seemed like Marcia had disappeared into thin air. But on March 20th, 1981, there was finally a break in the case workers were clearing overgrowth on a property in Bothell, Washington. Is it Bothell or Bothel? I'm not sure. If you're in Washington, tell me. As someone reached down to clear some of the underbrush, they almost touched a partial skull lying on the ground. Luckily, that skull was still in possession of its teeth, so the Snohomish County Sheriff's Office was able to match it to Marcia Moore's dental records. Inspector Jim Scharf explained, quote, there is no evidence of foul play, but we are still searching the site for other bones and clues. Marcia Moore is no longer a missing person. End quote. As they continued to search the scene, investigators were also able to recover a few other bones. Which leads us to theory number five. Marcia's brother, Robin Moore, believed that Marcia might have been a victim of a ritualistic sacrifice. He explained, quote, I don't for one minute believe that my sister died a natural death. I think her demise was assisted perhaps by a cult we don't even know about. Marcia was targeted by these people on several occasions. Robin elaborated that Marcia told him that a witch's coven was trying to kill her, and believed that she may have been used in a ritual since her skull was found separate to her other bones. And here's the sixth and final theory. Lauded crime writer Anne Rule also investigated and wrote about the case. Anne believed that Marcia likely met with foul play. Apparently Marcia's skull had a hole in it, and Anne believed that hole was likely caused by a bullet. After reviewing the skull, investigators didn't necessarily buy this theory, chalking it up to damage sustained when her skull sat outside in the elements for the better part of two years. If you want to check out Anne's book about the case, you already know where to find the link, mate, on the episode discovery page. Despite the sheer number of theories about this case, there's just not enough evidence to determine cause of death. Unfortunately, her remains were skeletonized and partial, and what remained was scattered around the property. Sadly, Marcia's death remains shrouded in mystery to this day. Can you imagine how her children would have felt losing their mother in such a tragic way and not having a clear-cut answer about what happened? Her son, Christopher Roof, was just 29 years old when Marcia's bones were finally discovered, and from what I can tell, he was very much like her. Chris had the heart of a poet and was also searching for meaning and fulfillment in his life. However, he forged a different path from his mother. That being said, his values were strikingly similar. Christopher was fairly spiritual. He was a member of the First Parish Church and also taught Sunday school there. Like his mother, he was a dedicated educator, teaching at his alma mater, Emerson College, and working as a substitute teacher at Concord Carlisle High School. Christopher was widely loved by his students, who admired his gentle, caring spirit. Did you watch Mr. Rogers when you were a kid? Apparently Christopher's vibe was really similar to Fred Rogers. Christopher also deeply admired the works of Henry David Thoreau, and had quite a lot in common with the author. They were both born in Concord, Massachusetts. They both wrote profound, introspective poetry. And they both yearned to live simply, reflect deeply, and live peacefully within nature. He even worked as a curator at the Thoreau Lyceum, an organization that celebrates Thoreau's legacy and values of inclusion, equality, and conservation. If Marcia's beliefs about reincarnation are true, Christopher could easily have been Thoreau reincarnated. And, like his favorite author, Christopher expressed an interest in heading off into nature by himself to live a quiet life. So when he disappeared in August of 2010, His family wasn't especially surprised or alarmed. They believed he'd finally decided to go off the grid. However, his students weren't satisfied with that explanation. So in 2011, they started a Facebook group called Where is Mr. Roof?" and started trying to track him down. After speaking with some of his fellow teachers, it was discovered that Christopher had fallen on hard times and may have even been preparing to be homeless. Apparently, he returned his apartment key to the real estate agency at the end of August 2010 and hadn't been seen or heard from since. Thinking he was deliberately estranged, his family didn't report him missing, and when his colleagues attempted to report him missing, they were told there wasn't enough evidence that he was endangered. For 11 long years, it seemed like Christopher had vanished into thin air until one of his students, a woman named Sidney Kopp, made a break in the case. Sydney was listening to an episode of True Crime Bullshit about the Stacyville John Doe. As the host, Josh Hallmark, was describing the unknown man, Sidney's ears began to prick up. On November 4th, 2010, the badly decomposed body of a man was discovered on a trail in Stacyville, Maine. Luckily, investigators were able to collect DNA samples from the remains. Unfortunately, there wasn't a match in the missing persons database, so the case went cold. He was described as a white man in his 50s, approximately 5'9 in height, 150 pounds, and had straight, brownish hair that was turning gray. At the time of his death, he was wearing a Vineyard Vines brand button down shirt, New Balance Model 811 sneakers, blue dress socks, and a medium-sized St. John's Bay dark brown canvas jacket. The only item that appeared to indicate his identity was a blue and white knitted cap with the name Chris knitted into the design. Based on his belongings, it was believed that the man came from means. I found photos of all these items, so head on over to the episode discovery page to check them out. When Sydney heard this description, she thought it sounded so much like her beloved teacher, Mr. Roof, but she wasn't sure what to do with the information. After all, it was a bit of a shot in the dark. Stacyville is nearly a five-hour drive from Christopher Roof's former home in Massachusetts. So, what was Mr. Roof doing up in northern Maine? After a bit of an internal debate, she decided to call in a tip to Maine State Police on August 9th 2021, nearly 11 years to the day after Christopher's last confirmed sighting. Fortunately, they took her seriously straight away and contacted Christopher's sister, Louisa, for more information. Eager to find out what happened to her brother, Louisa was more than happy to provide a DNA sample. Unfortunately, the type of DNA that was extracted from the Stacyville John Doe had to be compared to a male sibling or parent. So Christopher's brother also provided a sample. And guess what? It was a match. And, just to be sure, a forensic anthropologist compared photos of Christopher with their remains, checking to see if the bone structure matched. Finally, Christopher Roof's remains were identified. But, just like his mother before him, the circumstances surrounding Christopher's death remain a mystery. Both Marcia and Christopher's cause of death is undetermined. The remains were discovered in an inexplicable location, and they had both died as they lived, seeking their true path to enlightenment. What happened to Marcia and Christopher? Unfortunately, we don't know, and I'm not sure we ever will. Rest in peace, Marcia Moore and Christopher Roof. May angels lead you in. If you want to check out the books, podcasts, and photos I referenced throughout the episode, head on over to the episode discovery page to find the links. Before I go, I need to thank the legends who support Dead On. Special thanks to Chris Hardy of the True Crime Club on Facebook, Justin Ware, Haley Hepburn, Brandi Lewis, Daniel Vaughn, Michelle Angsmear, Jennifer Henshaw, and Lisa Powell. And if you want to help Dead On become a force to be reckoned with, you can support the show at patreon.com slash deadonpodcast. Okay, that's enough from me. If you're hanging out to crack a cold case too, send it on over to me. Let's collaborate and solve these cases together. And for fuck's sakes, stop committing crimes. Okay, bye. If you're all caught up on dead-on and looking for a new pod to binge, you gotta check out the Doe Identify podcast. Here's a little taste of what you can expect. Hey podcast lovers, my name is Haley and I run the Doe Identify podcast. I have been passionate about helping the unidentified get their names back ever since I found out I lived within miles of where Sherry Ann Jarvis, formerly known as the Walker County Jane Doe, was found. In my podcast, I tell the stories and provide information about unidentified people in hopes of reaching their loved ones and getting their names back. So come join me and help me advocate for these people. You never know, you could recognize someone's story.